Welcome to the Servants of Grace podcast hosted by Dave Jenkins. Our podcast exists to provide trustworthy expository messages through the Bible and faithful answers to your theology questions. Now for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins. Welcome back to the Servants of Grace podcast and to our theology segment. One of our listeners writes in and and they have a great question today. They ask this, what are the communicable attributes of God? Theologians, we, we like to use fancy words to describe biblical teaching and categories. Last week, we discovered what, what the incommunicable attributes of God are. And today, we're going to conclude this little brief two-part study on what the communicable attributes of God are. You see, the, the attributes of God, they're, they're very important to study. They help us to sort out what kind of God the God of the Bible is. Our God is independent, he's immutable, he's immortal, and he's eternal. This cannot be said of any creature. That is why most of the attributes of God carry the negative prefix, and it's why we call them incommunicable attributes, attributes that cannot be shared with us. However, because humans are created in God's image, they do share other attributes with God. And where we have attributes similar to God's, he is always qualitatively different and infinitely greater. And therefore, these communicable attributes will often have the omni-all prefix attached to them. The communicable attributes of God are are wisdom, knowledge, power, holiness, righteousness, justice, jealousy, wrath, goodness, love, and mercy. You see, God's communicable attributes are those attributes that we have to possess and have to manifest. The scriptures, after all, teach that God is holy in Leviticus 11, 44 through 46. The term holy, as it's used in the Bible to describe God, refers both to his nature and to the character of God. You see, God's holiness refers to his greatness, his transcendence, and to the fact that he is above and beyond anything in all the universe. And in that regard, the holiness of God is incommunicable. God alone is, in his being, transcends all created beings. And secondary, the word holy, as it applied to God, refers to his purity, his absolute moral and ethical excellence. This is what God has in mind when he commanded holiness from his creatures. For example, in Leviticus 11.44 and 1 Peter 1.16, Be holy, for I am holy. And when we are grafted into Christ, we are renewed inwardly by the Holy Spirit. The third person of the Trinity, the God the Holy Spirit, is called holy in part because his primary task in the Trinitarian work of redemption is to apply the finished and sufficient work of Christ to us. He is the one who regenerates us and the, and the one who works for our sanctification the, the Holy Spirit works in us and through us to bring us into conformity with the image of Christ, that we might fulfill the mandate for holiness that, that God has imposed upon us. In our fallen state, we are anything but holy, but through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, we are made, being made holy, and we look forward to our glorification, when we will be completely sanctified, purified of all sin, and utterly like the Lord Jesus. In that sense, we are imitators of God. Even in our glorified state, however, we are still creatures. We're not divine beings. When Paul speaks of our responsibility to be imitators of God, he mentions that we are called to manifest love in Ephesians 5.2. And the scriptures tell us in in 1 John 4.8 and 1 John uh, 4.16 that God is love. And the love of God is descriptive of his character. It's one of his moral attributes. It's a quality that does not belong to God alone. It's communicated to his creatures. God God is love and love is of God. And and all who love 
in the sense of the agape of which the scriptures speak are born of God. You see, God's love is an attribute that can be imitated. And we are called to do just that as the people of God. Well, you see, the goodness of God is another moral attribute that that you and I as Christians are called to emulate. Though the scriptures give a, a grim description of our ability in this regard. Mark 10, 17-18 says, and, and as he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked, A good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. But Jesus is not denying his deity here. He's simply asserting the ultimate goodness of God. Uh, elsewhere, the Apostle Paul, quoting the psalmist, says in Romans 3.10, None is righteous, no, not one. So in our fallen condition, we do not imitate or reflect this aspect of God's character. And yet believers are called because of the grace of God that they've been saved by to a life of good works. And so with the help of the Holy Spirit, we can grow in goodness and reflect God, uh, this aspect of God's nature. Well, you see, there are other attributes of God that, that we're to imitate. One, one, for example, is justice. When justice is spoken of in biblical categories and through a biblical worldview, it is never an abstract concept that that exists above and beyond God and to which God himself is bound to conform. Rather, in the scriptures, the concept of justice is linked to the idea of righteousness and it's based on the internal character of God. You see, the fact that God is just, it means that he always acts according to his righteousness. Well, theologians make a distinction between the internal righteousness or the justice of God and the external righteousness or justice of God. And so when God acts, he must always do what is right. In other words, he always does that which is in conformity with justness. In the Bible, justice is distinguished from mercy and grace. So if we were to be treated by God according to his justice, we would all perish. That's why when we stand before God, we we plead that he would treat us according to his mercy and grace of his son, Jesus, through his finished and sufficient work. You see, justice defines God's righteousness. He never punishes people more severely than the crimes. They all committed and deserve, but he also never fails to reward those whom a reward is due. He always operates justly. He, he never, uh, God never does anything that is unjust. And so there's two universal categories, justice and injustice. Everything outside the circle of justice is in the category of injustice, but there are also different kinds of justice. The mercy of God is outside the circle of justice and is a kind of injustice. Injustice is evil. It's, a, it's an act of injustice that violates the principles of righteousness. If God were to do something unfair, he, he would be acting unjustly. Abraham knew the impossibility of that when he said in Genesis 18.25, Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right. Because God is is a just judge, all his judgments are according to his righteousness, so that he never acts in an unjust way. He never commits an injustice. Well, you see, people get confused when considering this alongside the mercy and grace of God, because grace is not justice. Grace and mercy are outside the category of justice, but they're not inside the category of injustice. Now, there's nothing wrong with God as being merciful. There's nothing evil in his being gracious. In fact, in one sense, we have to extend this. Even even though justice and mercy are not the same thing, justice is linked to righteousness, and righteousness may at times include mercy and grace. 
And so the reason we need to distinguish between them is that justice is necessary to righteousness, but mercy and grace are actions God takes freely. God is never required to be merciful or gracious. And the moment we think that God owes us grace or mercy, we, are, we no longer are thinking about grace and mercy. Our minds tend to think that, that, that we may confuse mercy and grace with justice. But justice may be owed, but mercy and grace are always voluntary. And in terms of God's external of righteousness or justice and his internal righteousness or justice, God always does what is right. His actions, his external behavior always correspond to his internal character. And Jesus says it simply when he told his disciples that a corrupt tree cannot produce good fruit. You see, corrupt fruit comes from a corrupt tree and good fruit comes from a good tree, Matthew 7, 17 through 18 says. See, God always acts according to his character and his character is always righteous. And therefore, everything he does is righteous. And so there is a distinction between internal righteousness and his external righteousness between who he is and what he does, though they're connected. The same is true for us. We're not sinners because we win. We are sinner. We sin because we are sinners. That's our identity. There's something flawed about our inner character. And when the Holy Spirit changes us inwardly through regeneration, that change is evidence in an outward change of behavior. We are called to conform outwardly to the righteousness of God because we have been made as creatures in the image of God who have the capacity for righteousness. We have been made with the capacity to do what is right and to act in a just fashion. This is why Micah 6.8 says, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly before or humbly with your God? You see, God's justice and his righteousness are communicable attributes that we are called to emulate. Well, lastly, wisdom. God is, is seen not only as wise, but all wise. And we are told to act according to wisdom. The body of the Old Testament literature that falls between the historical books and the prophets is called the wisdom literature. It includes Job, it includes Psalms, it includes Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and, and the Song of Solomon. In fact, Pro Proverbs 9.10 9, tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You see, for the Jew, the very essence of biblical wisdom was found in godly living, not in clever knowledge. In fact, in the Old Testament, it makes a distinction between knowledge and wisdom. And so we're told to get knowledge, but above all, we're told to get wisdom. And the purpose of gaining knowledge is to become wise in the sense of knowing how to live in a way that's pleasing to God. And God himself never makes foolish decisions or, or behaves in a foolish manner. There's no foolishness in his character or activity. We, on the other hand, are filled with foolishness. And yet, wisdom is a communicable attribute and God himself is a fountainhead and source of wisdom. And so if we lack wisdom, we're called to pray to God that in his wisdom, he would illuminate our thinking, James 1.5 says. He gives us his word that we might be wise. Thank you for listening to the Servants of Grace podcast today. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe leave a rating on the app, and share our episode with your friends and family. If you'd like to, you can follow us on Instagram at Servants of Grace, on Twitter at Servants of Grace, or by searching Servants of Grace on Facebook. You can also find this podcast on the front page of our website at servantsofgrace.org.